Let's pray together. And as we do, we just remind you what that story is of which we're singing. So many places it's related to us in the scripture, but one of the best, really, that as I was reading it again just a moment ago, ties together all of that we've been singing of this morning. It's Ephesians 2, where Paul says that God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, that's your story. That's the old, old story of Jesus and his love applied to your life. And, and while each of us has a unique story, a personal story that God personally designed for us, as we've said here before, they all culminate the same way. And then I met Jesus, and he forgave me my sins and gave me new life. And as I prepare to lead us in prayer here in a moment, I want you just to quietly, while, while the music continues to play, I want you to think as best you can about the day, about the time when you met Jesus, when this story, the old, old story, became your story about the situations God used, about the people he brought into your life, about the message you heard, about the, the gospel that was shared that brought you to that point of realizing this is what I need most. How was it that God worked in your life? Who was it that he used to introduce you to Jesus? What do you remember best about your day of salvation? And as you think about that, I want to invite you right now just to, to pour out your gratitude to him in prayer. You can pray silently, you can pray in a whisper, you can pray audibly. But as you think about the old, old story of Jesus and his love and how it came to be your story, what do you want to tell him this morning? What words of gratitude can you offer Jesus for meeting and convicting and saving you? Just tell him right now about the gratitude in your heart. Well, Father, the truth is this morning that that all of us here this morning who, who know you, who've trusted Jesus, this story is our story. Father, you use all sorts of means and resources and mysterious ways to bring us out of the darkness and into the light, to take us from being dead in our trespasses and making us your workmanship created in Christ Jesus to be servants and ambassadors of the Most High God in the only true kingdom that will last for the only true king who will reign forever. The king of the universe who also has condescended to call us friends. And Father, we're thankful for Jesus this morning. We're thankful for the gospel this morning. We're thankful that these songs these sing aren't just pretty melodies and lovely words, but they are truth and life and nourishment to our souls. Father, we praise you for the reading of scripture. We praise you for the offering of prayers. We thank you for songs of worship. And Father, now we 
we, we praise you for the gift of your word. Father, we're actually going to be talking in the message this morning about your word, about the gift and the treasure it is to us, about the importance of making it our standard and our rock, and Father, what we choose to live our lives according to. And Father, I pray right now that having offered our voices and our hearts to you in worship, we'll now be ready to receive. Father, as always, not what a preacher has to say, but what the Word of God has to say to us through the power of the Spirit of God, through one ordinary servant of God who's going to try to speak to others of what your Word says. Father, we know in that endeavor we always desperately need the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that he lives within us. We're thankful that he dwells among us when we gather in the name of Christ And we plead with him now, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in each and every one of us. That as we pray often, that you would, by your power, guide us in truth. That you would guard us from error. Spirit, that you would deliver us from distraction. And that above all, you would help us to see Jesus. For it's Jesus we came to see. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And Lord, when we leave here in a little while and we go back to the rest of this day and the new week ahead, Father, I pray it'll be with a a sense of refreshment, a renewed spirit, a fresh joy. Father, once as, as we always say, Father, not because we came to church and all our problems got fixed, but because we came together as the people of God, as the church, and sat at the feet of Jesus, who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again in victory. It's him we love, it's him we praise, it's him we seek, and it is in his name that we pray, as all of God's people said together, amen, amen, you may be seated. Well, again, good morning, it is good to see all of you as you are taking your seats and getting settled, boys and girls, you can make a fast exit for Children's Church, go spend that time in God's word as we seek to do the same here. As the boys and girls are going out, I want to invite you to to grab your Bible and dig in. I want you to meet me this morning In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, as we continue this study, uh, as has been continued even, even in my absence over the last few weeks, as we've continued this study of looking at what it means to be the church, what it means not just to attend, but to belong to the church. And And, you know, sometimes, I guess it's true, I hope this comes across the right way, sometimes when you step away from something that you know well, you realize that you do really treasure it. And I can definitely say that getting back here this morning has reminded me of that. I mean, I I didn't mind taking three Sundays off, I'm going to be totally honest with you. And, And I'm grateful for that opportunity. And then with all that happened here, I thought maybe I should leave for three weeks more often. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, But we had a fantastic time away. God used it to really refresh our family, to renew our relationships. You spend uh, 4,300 miles and 85 hours in the car together, you're going to either learn to love each other more or you're going to go nuts. And we're all sitting in the same row, so things worked out okay as we we traveled. But, But I am glad to be back. I'm glad to be back with you. I'm glad to be back in God's word, and I'm excited to to see what he is going to continue to teach us in this series of studies. For those of you who may be visiting today, and as I stood in the foyer uh, watching you come in, I know there may be at least a couple of you. What we have been doing, you can see the theme of our series right now is we are a church, 
And uh, again, we're talking about the difference between merely attending a local church and genuinely belonging to a local church. That's really our aim in this series. And what does it mean to belong? And, and the way we've chosen to go about that is we have a document called our Covenant of Fellowship. I don't think we're still putting these in the bulletin right now, but most of you probably have a copy or have seen a copy. And it has a number of, of things that we ask those who want to call Maranatha their church home to commit to, uh, whether they ever join us in formal membership or not. And we've been working our way through these items one at a time, seeing the scriptural foundation for them and then talking about what they mean. And, and I did that for several weeks. And then over the past couple of Sundays, Scott and Gary have continued that. I'm thankful for what they taught, what they shared with you, what they shared with us. And, uh, but in the midst of all that, and for whatever it's worth, I just feel like this is, if, if, if it's nobody else's benefit, it's at least mine, we missed one of them in there. Uh, the schedule got shuffled. So I think last week and the, uh, and the week before, Scott and Gary did maybe points five and six or six and seven. Well, I'm going back up to the one we missed, and it's commitment. It is, in fact, commitment number five, and we'll be looking at that in a moment. So I want you to have 2 Timothy 4 open on one hand. Uh, if you've got that covenant of fellowship in front of you, have it on the other hand. As we dig into God's word today and continue uh, to see what this is all about. As I said, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm just going to look at a short passage of scripture this morning. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And this morning's reading is going to take us through verse 5. For those of you not familiar with the book of 2 Timothy, it's the last letter that we have in the Bible that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He may have written things after this. If he did, we don't have record of it. And we, we generally believe, we're pretty certain that it was not long after this. Weeks, maybe even days after writing this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, that Paul died for his faith in Jesus Christ. He was beheaded by the Roman Empire. And so what that means is these are Paul's last words. We're in the last chapter of Paul's last words and in the final bit of instruction that he was giving to Timothy and through Timothy to all of us who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And you know what that means is that these are serious words. A man's last words are often to be spe paid special attention to, and that's the case here. So with all that said by way of introduction, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, this is what the Word of God says. Paul says, Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry." Several years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine, uh, a believing friend, who shared with me as we were just having regular conversation, we hadn't been together in a while, but in the course of our conversation, talking about church and faith and life and all these things, he shared with me that very recently, in fact, it may have even been as recently as the prior Sunday, he had visited a church, a church I believe he had been to before, but he said, Aaron, something very interesting happened that got my attention at that church that particular morning. And what he told me was this. He said, when the minister of that church got up to read the scripture, the scripture passage they'd be looking at in the message that day, he prefaced the reading of scripture with these words, listen for the word of the Lord. 
That didn't mean anything to me the first time he said it. And I said, well, what, what got your attention about that? What was the big deal? And he said to me, well, it's very, very interesting. He said, because I've been to that church before, and I know that in the past, when they used to prepare for the reading of Scripture, whoever was going to read from the Bible would say this, listen to the word of the Lord. He said, and they don't say that there anymore. He said they made a subtle change of preposition. Listen to the word of the Lord is now listen for the word of the Lord. And he said, Aaron, what that signaled was this. And as soon as he explained it, I understood what he meant. He said, what that signaled was this. That minister that morning, though he, everything he was reading was going to come from the Bible. Everything he was going to say was written in the Bible. That particular minister in that particular church did not believe that everything he was about to read was the final, authoritative, living word of God. Listen for it. You might hear it. Maybe you'll hear something that means something to you. I'm not sure if it's all true or it isn't. Don't listen to it. Listen for it. And, and let it be to your heart, whatever it wants to be. I would hope you know that's not how we roll around here. That that's not what we believe or how we approach the word of God here at Maranatha. Instead, I hope you believe, I hope you've been around here long enough, or, or, or maybe even as a visitor would come in with this shared uh, conviction as well, to understand that every time we open our Bibles together, in a context like this, in a Sunday school, in a small group, in a Bible study, in a prayer meeting, that each and every time we open our Bibles here, that we do so believing what the two verses right before this morning's scripture reading say, which are this, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture, how much scripture? All scripture is inspired by God. Not some of it, not most of it, all of it. And all of it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now that's not to say we always get it right. That's not to say we don't encounter things in the Word of God that, that we don't understand, that we still have questions about. What it means, however, is that we hear that Bible isn't just in our name. It's not just sort of a, a placeholder on a sign in front of the building, but that we genuinely believe that each and every time we come together for worship, we start with the Word of God, we stick with the Word of God, because we believe that all of it is the true and authoritative Word of God. And that is why in our covenant of fellowship we have this line. It's commitment number five, and I want to throw it up on the screen if it's not there already. This is the commitment as a result that we have established and are going to look at today in the context of this particular passage. We ask those of you who want to call this church home to join with us by the power and the help of the Holy Spirit in guarding the spiritual and scriptural purity peace, and prosperity of the church, and its growth in scriptural knowledge and godliness. Now, that is a massive mouthful, so let me say it again. To guard the spiritual and scriptural purity, peace, and prosperity of the church, and its growth in scriptural knowledge and godliness. In other words, if you want it more simple, we, we start with and we stick to the Bible. 
We start with and we stick to the Bible. And, and as I said a moment ago, well, I hope you already agree with that statement, that, that your heart is as my heart as is as our heart, when we look at that and say, yes, that's exactly what we want to be all about. You may still, if you pause to think about it long enough, have the question, well, that's fine, that's good, I agree with it. What does it have to do with belonging to the church? How does it contribute to our understanding of the difference between merely showing up for a service and genuinely belonging and being integrated into the family. I mean, you read a passage like this, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and, and you would be within your rights. It would be totally appropriate for, for most of us to look at that and say, well, that's a verse for pastors. Uh, that's a, a passage for elders, for people who do sort of what I'm doing right here, what others just did across the street, people who stand with an open Bible before other believers in Jesus Christ and talk to them about what it says. And absolutely, that is the primary application of the five verses we're looking at this morning, but it's not the only one. It's not the only one. Yes, those of us who publicly teach the word must be absolutely sure that that is what we're doing. We are actually seeking to teach the word, but it's also for you. Say, it's also for me. It's also for you. Because all of us who belong to the local church, all of us who belong to this or any other local church have been called to truth. We've been called to the truth of the Word of God. And according to the five verses we're looking at this morning, that we're about to go back now and walk through step by step, that means among perhaps many, many other things, but at the very least, being called to truth in the local church means that all of us insist. We aim to insist on three things. Being called to truth in the local church means that together we will insist on three vital things. Number one, it means insisting first of all, that we proclaim God's word, that we are a church and we are a people who insist on the proclamation of God's word. You know, I'm not quite sure if there's any other way, any way in which the Apostle Paul could have put any more weight into and behind his charge to Timothy in verse 1 than what he does here. Look again at your Bible at 2 Timothy 4.1. Paul says this as he prepares again to deliver his final word of instruction to Timothy. And again, through Timothy to us, he says, I solemnly charge you. Think courtroom. Right hand raised. Left hand on the Bible. Serious, serious business. He's used language like this before, but he's never said what he's about to say here. He says, Timothy, I solemnly charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. I love that. He didn't call on one member of the Trinity. He called on two. He said, God the Father and God the Son are both in on this one. He could have brought the Spirit in as well. That's how serious he was. In the presence and in the sight of God the Father and Christ Jesus the Son, who, by the way, is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. In other words, I solemnly charge you in the sight of the one who is coming back, coming to judge, and coming to set up a kingdom like no other. The final, perfect, righteous kingdom. In light of all that, Timothy, here's your assignment. Here's your job description, the baton I now pass to you. Three simple words. Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, one sense, in its own right, that statement's fairly clear. But at the risk of, of maybe maybe digging a little bit deep, maybe getting into the weeds. Let me break it down for us, okay? What Paul is saying in that statement, preach the word. First of all, let's take it a word at a time. Preach. He says, preach the word. The word preach in the original language, it means to herald. It means to, 
to proclaim. It means to get loud. It, it means to openly teach and, and speak and proclaim with great conviction what the Bible says. Now, that doesn't mean you have to preach according to a certain style. Some are very dramatic and loud. Other preachers are very stoic and, and quiet. Uh, people have different approaches and, and methods in which they, they go to and bring forth the Bible. But the bottom line is this, is anybody who opens it up in front of others is called to proclaim. We don't merely share. We don't offer insights. We proclaim. We preach. We herald with great conviction the word. And not just a word, the word. That's the second part of Paul's statement. Preach the word. Preach the word. You know what that means? Not your word. <laughs> not my word. Not some old guys who used to hang around and say important stuff's word. Not, not some organization's word. Not someone's personal opinion. Preach the word. Preach the word. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, never forget, the Bible is the soil in which we dig. The Bible is the field in which we labor, and it's wide, and it's deep, and it's rich, and it's wonderful, but it does have boundaries. And, and there are clear boundaries. There are things it says, and there are things that it doesn't. There are things it teaches and instructs, and there are things it prohibits. And this is the soil, the Bible, in which we work. And the reason we are to preach not a word, not my word, not our word, but the word, is because the Bible, according to its own testimony, and you can find verse after verse after verse that says this, can do things nobody else can. No other book can do. Hebrews 4.12, many of you know it well. It says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it can pierce to the heart. Not the physical heart, but the spiritual heart of a woman or a man or a young person. It can go places nothing else can go. It can reveal things no one else can reveal. It can convict and teach and heal and comfort and transform and save and restore. So preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. And Paul says preach the word. And again, maybe this is... Not even does not even necessarily need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. It doesn't mean we can't tell stories. It doesn't mean we can't share quotes. It doesn't mean the one who teaches or preaches that, it, that it's wrong to ever say, well, here's what I think this means. You've heard me say that before. My understanding of what, what Paul or Peter or James or whoever it is is trying to say, what this psalm is all about, I think. I mean, it, it's okay to say, hey, I'm not entirely sure. But just be sure I think what Paul is saying to Timothy here is that the tail never wags the dog. That you're not using the Bible to teach your own opinion. That, that you don't start with a, a premise, an idea. I, I've got this nail and I'm going to hammer it into the people on Sunday. I'll find a verse to baptize it in, but really what I'm preaching is my own opinion. No, no, no. Preach the Word. God's Word. And he says it this way in verse 2. Look again at your Bible. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Why? Because the Bible's always relevant. Preach it in order to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Why? Because it's always applicable. And always do it, Paul says in verse 2, with great patience and instruction. Why? Because every single person in this room is at a different point in their journey of moving toward maturity in Christ. We're all at a different place. We're all dealing with different circumstances and situations. God has lessons and virtues that he's trying to impress upon you, but he's, he's got some different lessons and virtues he's trying to work into me 
And, and so when we teach God's word, we need to be patient. Why? Because we're all moving at different paces. We're all battling different challenges. We're all seeking to climb different mountains with great patience and instruction so that the word can do its work in every one of us. Now, is that easy? No. Is it popular? Not really. Does it, does it mean we, we sometimes get it wrong? Absolutely. Should we correct them when we do? Without question. Do those of us who teach need accountability? The answer is yes. You know what? We also need in equal measure encouragement to keep preaching the word, to not succumb to the spirit of the age, to not just say things that, that make us happy but may not necessarily be what God really wants us to know. Why? Because as I'm trying to establish, as I hope you're hearing from me, proclaiming God's word is a corporate effort. Yes, people like me stand and do most of the talking, but we're all in on it. We all have a responsibility in making sure that the word of God is proclaimed. It's something all of us who say we belong must commit to. That's the first thing that Paul says in this passage. Being called to truth means we insist on the proclamation of God's word. Secondly, verses 3 and 4 tell us something else. What they tell us is that people who have been called to truth, people in a local church family who have been called to, to, to preach and to speak and to follow the word of God, not only, number one, are we called to proclaim it, number two, we are also called to uphold it. Being called to truth in the local church means that you and I will uphold God's word together as well. Many of you are familiar, I would imagine, with A.A. Milne, the author of the classic Winnie the Pooh children's stories, The Hundred Acre Wood, Christopher Robin, and all of that. Most of us know his name because of that. A.A. Milne was a, a writer of children's stories. He was also a poet, uh, an accomplished poet in his own right, again, mostly uh, for children, if I understand correctly. But, but, but many, many years ago, he wrote a poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you this morning. I think you should, because it's really entertaining. But he had a poem called Bad Sir Brian Botany. And, and I want to share with you the first verse of that because I think it's relevant to where we're going this morning. A.A. Milne in Bad Sir Brian Botany wrote the following. He said, Sir Brian had a battle axe with great big knobs on. And he went among the villagers and blipped them on the head. On Wednesday and on Saturday, especially on the latter day, he called on all the cottages and this is what he said. I am Sir Brian, Ting Ling. I am Sir Brian, rat-tat. I am Sir Brian, as bold as a lion. Take that, and that, and that. And I share that with you because as I thought about it, I was reminded of that poem this week. I thought that is what so many Christians do to their fellow Christians who think that in their own view, in their own estimation, you've gotten away from God's word. This is the way that believers, you know the stories, treat one another. When in their view, when in their informed opinion, someone else who claims to follow Jesus is failing to uphold God's word. Say something I disagree with, blip. Write something I don't like, blip. Sing a song that I don't find theologically sophisticated, blip, blip, blip. That always gets three every time. We go around blipping each other on the head because we think somehow that will shock someone back into righteousness, put them back on the, the road of biblical purity. And I know because I can tell you, the blips come via snail mail, they come via email, they come via social media. 
I've noticed as I observe the wider church world, some of you are aware of this as well, that oftentimes they seem directed to everyone except the person it's actually meant for, the person that they have a problem with. And it often seems that the blips we inflict on one another really have no intent to pursue Christ-like resolution. We just want the rest of the world to know I'm right and they're wrong. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. I've got it figured out. Would you agree with me when I say that none of that bears any resemblance to what it means to actually uphold the truth of God's word? It's nothing like what God has called us to do to and among one another when we get off track. Now, the fact of the matter is this. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, the time will come when they, and it's very important to know who they are, they are people in the church. Not the world, the church. People who walk into buildings like this, sit in pews like these, auditoriums, wherever it is that that the people of God ostensibly gather. He says a time is going to come, verse 3, when they, those within the church, will not want to endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul had seen that. Surely Timothy had too. And and the reason Paul's warning Timothy is because Timothy was going to see more of it as, as the church continued to grow and as he took the baton of ministry. And of course, I think we all know that, that this sort of thing still happens all the time today. That error and heresy and spiritual deception, they are realities. They are serious spiritual dangers that every church faces. Why? Because we have an enemy. You knew that, right? We have an enemy, and he is not neutral toward what we're doing here this morning. He hates the word of God. He hates you, us, the people of God. He hates Jesus Christ. And he will do whatever he can, and sometimes it's a frontal assault. More often, it's a sneaky side door because he's a master of deception. He will do whatever he can to keep you from hearing and obeying the word of God, to keep me from hearing and obeying the word of God. He'll do everything he can to help us misunderstand, misapply the word of God and go around blipping each other on the head rather than looking to Jesus whose word it is. Why? Because the Bible tells us he's on a mission. It is to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not neutral toward what we're doing here this morning. He's not neutral toward that quiet time you're planning to have tomorrow morning but may not because something's going to get in the way. Why does that happen? Because he hates the word of God and he hates it when the people of God are in the word of God and choose to apply and live by the word of God face a challenge. And that is why our covenant of fellowship has this statement in it. Why we implore each and every one of us who belongs to this local church to guard, everybody say to guard, to guard the spiritual and scriptural purity, peace, and prosperity of the church and its growth in scriptural knowledge and godliness. Now, my hope this morning, and really my belief, because I've been around here a little while, and I know most of you relatively well, I would say that in most cases here this morning, we all agree that it is important to guard the spiritual purity, the scriptural purity of our church, as I've been saying all along, that we that we follow, read, study, and obey God's word. We're committed to biblical purity. Here's my question, and it's a personal question. And I don't share it in a blipping manner. I'm simply asking you to look at your own heart and say, are you, am I, are we? Are we equally committed to upholding 
the scriptural peace of our church family and the scriptural prosperity of our church family. Because you know as well as I do, it's entirely possible to know the right thing and do it the wrong way. To seek to correct, to rebuke, to train in righteousness, as Timothy says, as Paul says to Timothy. And yet, and yet rather than do it in a way that builds peace, that's unity, prosperity, that's maturity. It divides and separates and destroys. Here's the question I'm asking. Do we, and I mean we, do we believe that in upholding God's word, what we do and how we do it are of equal importance? It's not enough just to know what's right. It's equally important to do it, to deal with it, to address it the right way. Paul did. Paul believed that both those things were important because in Galatians chapter 2, he told us about it. In Galatians chapter 2, and I'm not going to take the time to turn to the passage and tell you the whole story, but the bottom line is this. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul became, Paul related to the Galatian church that he had become aware of the fact that the apostle Peter had begun drifting in his preaching of the gospel and his ministry in the church away from grace and back into law. That Peter had gotten mixed up. He was failing to uphold the truth of God's word, and he's separating Jewish believers from Gentile believers, and he's behaving in ways absolutely contrary to what Jesus taught and Peter himself had taught before. And Paul heard what was happening, and here's what he says in Galatians 2.11. He said, when I heard what what Peter was doing, I opposed him to his face. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, there's a very important uh, uh, just observation to make there, to his face, not to his friends, Right? his face. I went to him, and I opposed him because he stood condemned. That's what it does say. You know what it doesn't say? He made a scene. He screamed and yelled. He, he wrote an open letter to whom it may concern. Here's what y'all ought to know about Peter. He's wrong. I'm right. Don't listen to him. What a mess. He didn't do that. In fact, if you read the rest of Galatians chapter 2, the rest of the passage says this. It says he simply asked Peter a question. The short version of it is, Peter, what are you doing? You know better. He just asked him a question. Where did you get the idea that this is the way it is? You know better. And on the strength of the passage, I don't know what what else happened, but I know what Paul tells us. On the strength of that question, bringing the right message in the right way to a fellow believer in Christ, Peter got corrected. Unity was restored, and the work of the gospel that Satan was trying to distract them from went on. He did the right thing in the right way. And all I'm really saying is, as as those of us who belong to this church family, could we just insist on the same thing here? Could we? Let's do the right thing the right way. Let's do God's word with God's heart. Let's speak to one another, and, and when necessary, correct one another not with condemnation. Why? Because my Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't condemn me. No, he corrects me. He disciplines me as he does with you. How about we follow his example in upholding God's word? Why? So that everyone who calls this church home has every chance to grow in knowledge and godliness, as the statement says. It's the second thing we have to insist on, being called to truth. Number one, that we will proclaim God's word. Number two, that we will uphold God's word. Third and finally, verse five, 
tells us that being called to truth means that together we insist upon spreading God's word. The third and final challenge we're given is to be people who spread God's word. You know, it is, uh, it is widely believed that the reason Paul told Timothy, look at verse 5, when he said, be, you be, be sober in all things, endure hardship, when he told him to do the work of an evangelist, it's generally believed that the reason Paul said that is because Timothy didn't have the gift of evangelism. He didn't have the, the spiritual gift of just naturally and easily turning conversations to Jesus and the gospel. He didn't have that, that gifting that, that, that just regularly, frequently helps close the deal, as it were, lead people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So he had to do the work of an evangelist because he didn't have the gift of evangelism. And you know what that means? It means he was exactly like most of us, right? Didn't have the gift of evangelism. Now, everybody in the room this morning who knows Jesus has a gift, I know because Scott said so two weeks ago. I listened to his sermon. You have a gift. I have a gift. And, and we're supposed to use those gifts to build up the body and spread the word. But chances are, because there's a variety of gifts, and each one has been given a different one, that, that while a few of us have the gift of evangelism, most of us have the gift of something else. Meaning what? Meaning that what Paul said to Timothy here is also to be said to me and to you. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, in its purest sense, an evangelist, the definition of the word means bringer of good news. It should be a bringer of good news. But, but this week as I was reading, I came across an even better definition, a one-word definition of, of doing the work of an evangelist that I'm, I'm going to try to remember. I want you to remember too. I don't know who said it. I don't know where it first originated. But it said it means be a gospelizer. To do the work of an evangelist means to be a gospelizer. That is, wherever you go, whatever you do, whoever you interact with, however you've been gifted, that, that at all times you seek to remember the fact and somehow express the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. To carry that message with you wherever you go. As you, and this is vitally important, look at verse 5 one more time, do the work of an evangelist. I'm going to add something in here, and I don't think it's manipulating the text. As you fulfill your ministry. You fulfill your ministry. Yours is different than mine. Your ministry is different than my ministry. Mine is not the same as somebody else's. But you have a ministry because you have a gift. And so as you fulfill the ministry God's given you, whatever that is, whatever it looks like in the church and without, do the work of an evangelist. Be a gospelizer wherever you go. So for example, we won't go through all of them, but let me give you a few. If your gift is serving, many of you I know have a gift of, of serving. You have an, a unique spiritual ability to be a servant toward others. Well, being a gospelizer, fulfilling your ministry in that way means, among many other things, that you serve in a way that displays the humility of Christ. He was a humble servant. He took the place of a servant, washing people's feet. It means if your gift is teaching, that is my gift. It's some of yours as well. You've exercised it, many of you, this morning already. Teach in a way that echoes the compassion Christ had for sinners. Because often, time and again, we're told that he taught with great compassion. If your gift is giving, just heard about that last week from Dr. Barker. Give in a way that reflects the sacrificial love of Christ. He didn't give a little, he didn't give some, he didn't give most, he gave all. Everything he had to give. 
sacrificially. Why? For me. Give sacrificially. If your gift is mercy, and if you have a gift of mercy, of identifying with people in places of deep hurt and need, well, show mercy in a way toward others that illustrates the holy, undeserved nature of salvation. Did you deserve to be saved? I didn't. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he forgave us. We didn't deserve it. That person in your life doesn't deserve it either. But Jesus showed it to them. You and I are called to do it too. Shows the holy, undeserved nature of forgiveness and salvation. In other words, what I'm saying, I said it a moment ago, being a gospelizer, doing the work of an evangelist means doing your life, living your life in a way that when people see what you're doing and how you do it, they wonder. They may not, when they see you living out the life of a gospelizer, it doesn't mean they're going to drop what they're doing and run to the nearest church. It probably doesn't even mean they're going to approach you at break time and say, tell me all about this Jesus whom you love and follow and serve. Probably won't happen. But, but it might just get their attention. It might just crawl under their skin enough that they begin to say, why does she do that? Because that's not what everybody else around here does. Why did he do that? Why do they live that way? Why don't they do what everyone else here is doing when the chips are down? When life is hard. And, and suddenly, the seed of the gospel gets planted. You've been a gospelizer simply because you're living in obedience to God's word. That's the answer. And maybe someday you'll get to give it, and if not, maybe someone else will. Why would she do that? Why would he do that? Because we've been called to spread the truth of God's word. We proclaim it, we uphold it, and we spread it. And we're called to spread it among people who never, by their own initiative, will ever walk into a room like this. You've got to take it to them, and so do I. It means insisting that we spread God's word. Now, with all that said, and I know there's so much more we could say, we won't, but with that much said, if you still have doubts lingering, I hope you don't, but if for some reason you do, about why being called to truth is so important, that we understand that it is the word of God we start with and stick to, about why being called to truth is something all of us must insist on. It's not just me locked away in an office trying to figure it out, but it's you doing the same and then living it out. If you have any doubt whatsoever about the importance of sticking to the truth, let me share with you in closing a story that a missionary acquaintance of mine recently sent me. True story. I want this just to be sort of where we land and walk away with today. I can't tell you the missionary's name or where they serve because they're in a a highly sensitive, dangerous part of the world, but the story is true. When he wrote it to me, this is what he said. He said, there was some years ago a godly man who was imprisoned because the government and the land in which he lived didn't like what he was saying about the kingdom of God. There was another man in that prison who was there for having committed unspeakably heinous crimes. Well, the first man began to disciple the second man through which the bad man completely changed his life around. After his release, he, the formerly bad man, who'd now been discipled and reformed, left the land in which he'd been imprisoned to further God's kingdom in another country, eventually starting a movement that began attracting young people from around the globe, wanting to join in establishing God's kingdom with God's law. And though this man was martyred in 2006 for his beliefs, the movement kept growing and eventually became known 
as ISIS. Message point being content is crucial. Truth matters. Knowing the truth. Proclaiming the truth. Upholding the truth. Spreading God's truth. That's why today's big idea is that all of us, everybody say all of us, all of us are called to know and to follow the truth of God's word. All of us are called to know and to follow the truth of God's word. Father, I thank you for the scriptures. Father, I thank you that you in your infinite wisdom, Father, as you were Before you even created the world or anyone in it, anything in it, you had a plan of salvation and you had a plan for your word to be, again, the soil in which we work, Father, the field in which we labor, the message, the truth to which we align our lives and and live in this broken world. Father, we don't understand everything your word says. There are things that we at times see differently. There are there are things in it we're still trying to work out. But Father, the, the plain things and the main things are the same. You are the great creator who, who loves us with an everlasting love. We sinned and rebelled against you, but you gave your son for our salvation. And Father, now because of Jesus' work on the cross, as your word relates to us so clearly and so compellingly, any one of us who will repent of our sin and run to Christ for salvation, will be given the gift of eternal life. Father, that's the main thing, that's the plain thing. And from there, we simply want together to learn, to live our lives out according to your truth. Father, I thank you that as we go into our homes this week, we have many ways in which we can open up and read our Bibles. Father, I thank you that as we continue and go into this new week, there are many opportunities where we can gather together and study the Bible. And Father, I pray that as a church family, as we we consider and, and we cling to the call to truth, to proclaim, to uphold, and to spread your truth, Father, we will not settle for head knowledge, but we'll we'll move to heart knowledge and life application. Father, so that we really are quantitatively, qualitatively different for the sake of Jesus. Father, I take you t- I pray you take the things of truth that have been spoken here today and seal them to our hearts. I pray you take everything else that is irrelevant in details and cause it to slip away. So we leave looking to and savoring Jesus alone in whose name we pray.